Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead, and this is Austin Real Estate Investing. Today, we have Tim Swerzak here. He's a lender, and he's going to talk all about lending with everybody here. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jordan. How's it going, man? Going great. Just uh, enjoying my time here out of town for a little bit, enjoying a little cooler weather here in Minnesota. Not always bad to get out of Texas in the summer. But I'm just going to ask you a few questions and let us let you tell us about your awesome experience in real estate investing and helping all sorts of people with loans. Let's do it. All right. So Tim, real quick, who are you and how are you involved with real estate investing? Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess my, my, I got into my day job because I wanted to be a real estate investor. So uh, I, I mean, my, my day job is as a loan officer and I primarily do a lot of conventional FHA, traditional financing type that, that most people do. That's the primary business I'm in. But over the years, as a real estate investor, I actually found that there are other products that, that I think are better, frankly, in like the alternative spaces. And so over the years, I've used a lot of those to get creative on my financing and my purchases. So as kind of a side deal, I also help people get connected with portfolio lending it's traditionally called which is like yeah and just think of it as like creative financing things that the kind of the stories you hear about doing deals and getting creative on them that's that's kind of my i don't know if it's my hobby but it's my secondary deal and then i'm uh my wife and i are real estate investors we got ourselves up to 20 units locally and you know we thought we'd never ever sell any of them or anything and and then i started to realize the more i was in this the more i met with people and learned, I realized that being a long-term mindset investor doesn't mean you can't ever sell a property. And so we found a great opportunity to better our situation. And so we actually sold off a bunch and are now also involved in real estate syndications. So kind of kind of do a lot with real estate. Awesome. Thanks, man. Why did you get into real estate investing personally? I used to, this is a long time ago now, right? Like more than 20 years ago, I had a conversation with a guy. I was a car salesman at the time, real, you know, young, fresh out of, you know, college age still really, like early 20s. And he was telling me about how he is, he had bought, I think at that point he was at nine properties, maybe eight, something like that. And he told me when he got to 10 properties, he was going to quit and become a full-time real estate investor. And that was like my introduction to, to it. And he was a competitor of mine. He was just telling me about his experience and situation. And frankly, in one phone call, he pretty much sold me uh, that I wanted to be a real estate investor. And so when I met my wife, it kind of gave me an opportunity to switch careers. And I looked at either becoming a loan officer or a real estate and, uh, or a, a realtor um, in order to facilitate that. And at the time, I felt like uh, a combination of my skill sets were better as a loan officer. And I also kind of felt like knowing the money side might be more important because at that time I didn't have a lot of money. I was in my early twenties and I'm like figuring out the money's uh, pretty important. Right. Um, so, so that's kind of that, that guy, that conversation is what started me on the path. And we've been investors now for somewhere around 16 years. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that earlier today myself. I was thinking, Hey, what's the better career to get into if you're interested in real estate investing? And I really came to the, hey, it's better to be a, a lender because you learn how to finance and fund the projects, which is, as you know, as real estate investors, is probably our hardest, hardest part of our job is financing and funding them. Finding the deals as a realtor, it just didn't seem like it gave me as many advantages. 
I'm personally a realtor and I, I have some advantages, but I don't have all the advantages of somebody that learns how to finance and fund and put that whole thing together. You know, not only that, I think you have a lot more experience underwriting people. So it gives you some, some ideas of how to analyze deals. So it's weird. I, I think I could go either way on that question because I think the real answer is both are pretty important. And if you're on one side, you should know someone good on the other side, right? I think that's like the big thing. But it's funny because I do feel like what I did set me up to be in a position at this point in my life to know I could like, I have people bringing these deals to me and they're like, Oh, what do you think of this? Like, it's pretty creative. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I did that 10 years ago. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, I I feel like I have all the tools for sure now, but now I got to find the properties. Right. And so I'm really great. on one. it's like the bodybuilder who's got a really awesome upper body, but no legs. I mean, you need both sides. Right. And so I think, uh, the, the more I do this, the less I think real estate investing is about one person is more about a team. I bought all those properties and I kind of willed them when we did it on our own, but I've made a lot more money since I started bringing other people into my business. I think you can do it either way, but you need both. You absolutely have to have both. If you think just knowing the property is going to be enough, you're wrong. And if you think, cause you're going to make so many financing mistakes um, that are not obvious. And if you think that just knowing the financing is going to get you the properties, you're wrong too, because you need to find good deals. Right. So, so yeah, I guess we'll dive more into the lending side of things here. And I guess everybody's biggest question and my question for you to start out is how do people get started and what do you think the best ways to get started are? You and I agree on this, so it's going to probably be on your podcast a lot, but there's, sure. in my opinion, only one way to get started unless your family situation does not allow it. And that that is the house hack, right? And for those who don't know what house hacking is, the way I would ex- define it is receiving income on the property that you live in, right? So whether that be the most common would be like you live in one side of a duplex and you rent out the other, but, uh, or it could be a triplex, could be a fourplex, could even be a single family. I've even heard of someone who did that on a rental. Basically they sublet, they rented a place out for so much and then rented out per room. That would be house hacking, uh, at least in the truest sense. But in the purpose of real estate investing, I think the best way is to house hack, house hack a duplex. And the reason why I think a duplex is best is because from my general experience, and I'm totally generalizing, people get over enamored with three triplexes and fourplexes and they pay too much for them as a general rule, right? I'm totally generalizing there, but like they get excited because they think that somehow they're scaling. And I don't think there's, I think that if you look at price to rent ratio, they might be getting a worse deal. And so, yeah, they might be getting four units, but they're paying more per dollar of rent than they need to. I think, frankly, duplexes are kind of underestimated. I think they're uh, cash machines, or at least they can be. And that is the best way to get started is to live in one side of a duplex, rent out the other, and get the lowest possible down payment program that suits your needs. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree myself. My best deals have been duplexes I've house hacked. Uh, my first deal was a duplex I house hacked, and in about three years, I made 130 grand profit and made 500 bucks a month while I lived there. My most recent deal was a duplex, and I'll make around a 20% cash on cash return on that, putting down right at $13,000 to get it. So, yeah, it's just hard to make those kind of returns or anything else. So, Tim, 
for yeah. people that you mentioned, there is a subset, and I think you and I could both agree, almost everyone can house hack. I heard so many reasons of why I can't, and I can debunk almost all those reasons. But let's just say you absolutely can't, or maybe you just don't want to. What are the next ways for people to get started real estate investing? And what do those financing options look like? Yeah. So if you're not going to house hack, I've got some bad news for you. And that is the cash needed increases dramatically, right? In terms of the percentage of money you need to qualify, both as a down payment and when you're not living in it, most loan guidelines require that you have money after closing for emergencies, right? Let's call it savings. The technical term, by the way, if I, in case I say this later in the podcast, is called reserves. And what a reserve is one month of mortgage payment in the bank. So I might say, for example, you need six months reserves. That means whatever the mortgage payment is on the new property, you need six months of those in the bank is kind of how we define that. Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have gotten a little bit, they've they've gotten off of the one month per uh, strategy and they now do the calculation slightly different, but I don't want to complicate the listeners. And frankly, you shouldn't be analyzing your own finances when it comes to that. So, you know, check with the loan officer on what you need for reserves, but but that is something that's important. So the, the programs, as a general rule, most people look at conventional loan programs and you can get single families for down payments as little as 15% down and duplexes on a conventional world start with 25% down if you're not going to live in it, right? And one thing I like people to know because it's just a big old myth that you can just shop lenders and someone's going to say, oh, I'll get you 10% down. If it's a conventional loan, it can't be less than 25. Lenders can make it more restrictive, but they can't be less restrictive. So if you hear a lender saying we can do 20% down, that's possible. It's just not a conventional loan. Okay. So I like to point that out. I actually offer 20% down loans, but they're not conventional. So the big down payment is the biggest restriction for people. And there are ways around it. But what I usually like to say is if you're those ways around it, increase the risk to the, you know, of the deal. And I do encourage you to partner with people and get experience before you start increasing your risk, right? So try to start small, even if you can only get one single family rental, find some way to get some landlording experience before you start introducing other people's money in big money and cashing out your retirement savings just to become a real estate investor. Let's, let's start slow, right? Like, a lot of podcasts that I hear, you hear people bragging about how great they did. But I think for every one of those people, you didn't hear about the hundred who failed or whatever it is, right? And maybe it's just 10, but um, you know, the person who buys 25 homes in their first year is abnormal. And I think if you went back to them five years later and said, how did you end up? I don't think you're going to find a very good ending story. I, I think that that podcast that for that one year makes a great podcast. Lots of people listen to it and they sign up for websites and stuff, but I don't think those people are long-term successful. So my recommendation would be to start small, get like a single family with 15% down, or if you can find a way um, to find a 20% down duplex deal, I would do that. And get your first deal under your belt. It does not have to be your best deal, right? You don't, you're not going to retire on that first one. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times too, it's easy to look at how many units am I getting? And I've learned this the hard way. Units doesn't equal cash flow. So I had goals in the past just to get a certain number of units because that sounded like a good goal. Hey, I want to get this many or that many. And 
anymore. I don't care about how many units it is. If it's a single family or a 12 unit and it makes the same money, I probably want the single family. It's going to be a little easier to manage. It's going to be easier to unload when it comes to that. So I think you really want to focus on those metrics and, and figure out how much cash flow am I going to make? Yeah, I'm, I'm big on the rent to price ratio. I think I'm, I think most of the rules don't uh, don't work very well. Like the 1% rule is silly in my eyes. It just so happens a lot of the properties that I buy are right around the 1% rule, but that's just because the market I'm in. If I'm in a low value market, for example, uh, if, the, if every house is $30,000 and I'm getting the 2% rule, so, so what, $600 is going to, I guess it just doesn't make any sense to me like why someone would look at that rule and, and take it very seriously. You know the Minneapolis market well, so I can talk about this. For Austin people, you might not get it, but we have a higher priced area um, called Uptown. And I don't think you need to be anywhere near 1% in Uptown to make a great living to have an awesome investment. I think it can be 0.8 or 0.75 there. But if you're in Northeast Minneapolis, you have to be really close to 1%. About 0.9 is what most of mine are, between 0.9 and 1.1. And in other areas, I think you need to be one and a half, right? And so I guess I agree with you. I'm just suggesting that people shouldn't even have a, a big rule of thumb. I just think you need to find out what works for you in your area. But yes, units can be overrated big time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why me personally, I just really like to analyze deals to figure that out. It takes a few minutes to do and, and you have a much better idea of what's going on. And just picking one area. So in Austin... I'm pretty focused on 78721, which is east of 35 in East Austin. I know the rents in the area. I know what the values of the homes in the area would be. It's not too hard for me to figure it out. But even in a sub-market such as Austin, Texas, or Minneapolis, Minnesota, you need to know what neighborhood-to-neighborhood rents for. You just mentioned right. uptown and northeast. You could ride a bicycle in between the two, and it wouldn't take you too long. Right. But they're absolutely different areas. So you, you want to know those things. You want to know the rents. You want to know the price that you could get in the area. So we, yeah. we talked about getting into your first rental. I think both of us agree house hacking is absolutely the way to go. Even if you've got a dog or you have a kid or whatever excuse you have for not being able to do it, there's a way to do it. Yeah. Uh, how do people get into their second or third deal? Let's yeah, say they're well, going to house hack. Let's say they are going to, you said? Sure. Why not? Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing about getting into your second deal is making sure you don't screw up your first deal. And <laughs> so a lot of times what people do is they, they focus on that first deal in a silo and they're not thinking about the second. So they make these little choices that make it harder to do the second deal. And when it comes to house hacking, a good example would be, here's one that I think that vets make a lot. And I think there's more uh, VA buyers in Austin than here. You can get a VA loan with 0% down on a duplex, right? Or fourplex, whatever. But if you do that, you make it really hard for your second loan to qualify for a small down payment loan. Uh, because the if you were to, uh, like if your second loan was FHA, for example, if you do that loan second rather than first, they don't let you use the rental income from the property you're leaving. So property number one, if it's a VA loan and you want to qualify for property two, you don't get to use any rental income to qualify on property number two. So it's kind of like you're qualifying for two loans with no rental income, right? It's difficult. Some people can do it, but many can't. If you use the FHA loan first and the VA loan second, 
that doesn't exist because VA doesn't have that rule. In fact, VA won't let you use rental income unless you can prove that you've been a landlord for a year or you're using a property manager. So if you've owned a VA, an FHA home for one year and then get a VA loan second, you, you satisfy that requirement too. And it's a piece of cake. And it's just a matter of what loan you use first, right? So planning out your loan strategy before you buy your first property can make a big difference. Same thing can happen. You don't have to be VA for this to work. Uh, there's similar things uh, when you look at conventional loans and FHA loans. So planning your first couple of deals to use up your low down payment loan options correctly will make a big impact. We used to talk about this a lot, but you can you can basically get, even if you're not a vet, you can get two homes for the equivalent of 8.5% down between the two if you do it right. But if you do it wrong, that's going to be one home at either 35 or 5 right? Another thing that people do often that's wrong is if they're a couple, they put both of the couple's names on the same loan. And frankly, you should be using one person at a time. So if you've got a spouse or significant other, you don't put both names on just because it makes you feel good. If you've got a good lender, which I'm sure Jordan can hook you up with in Austin, hopefully most people listening to this will be able to figure out a way to put only one person on the loan. There's lots of tricks that you can do to get that to happen. It doesn't always work, right? It's better to get your first deal done uh, with two people on than not do it at all. But make smart choices early on will make it easier to get the second and third loan. There are 5% down conventional loans. There are FHA at three and a half. There's VA at zero. Those are three awesome loan choices, but the order you do them in matters. That's awesome advice. And that's some stuff I didn't even know about the VA loans. So Tim, let's say somebody is just a normal and not a veteran, and they're looking to buy their yep. first duplex and maybe want to buy another duplex right after as soon as they can, and they make just a normal income in the United States, what would your recommendation for them be there? And I know this is going to differ yep. for everybody, so absolutely talk to a lender. This is just a recommendation here. It, it will differ based on the, the biggest factor I'm going to look at is their current income. And so the number, I looked it up for Austin. I used to have it, I had it memorized for a minute, but their income matters, right? So if your income is below Freddie Mac home possible limits, right? And we can look those up. It's easy enough. Matter of fact, maybe I will here during the podcast and report it. But Freddie Mac's uh, home possible income limit, if you're below that level, in Minnesota, that's 82200 And if you make below that, what I recommend you do is use the 5% down conventional loan first. And I'd recommend that because that because of that income cap, it's very difficult to buy your second home using that. And the reason why I say that is it, it all goes back to that whole, can we use rental income or not? So if you can imagine, they let you use, you have an income of 82,000, but that includes the rental income if you're going to use it. So if you have property number one and you used an FHA loan, and you're now buying property number two, trying to use this 5% down loan. The problem you'll run into is if the income from your first rental pushes you over 82,000 a year, you can't use it. And even if it doesn't push you over the limit, if it brings you just below 82,000, now you're trying to qualify for a second house, but your income's capped at that number. So what we would do instead is we would try to get you that 5% down conventional loan first. And then um, with the understanding that your income is going to go up and we can use rental income, at least from your second property on the FHA, uh, we're just going to hope that your income rises enough that we can use FHA loan second. 
And I say hope because it depends on your situation. Uh, but I've seen that be successful. If that doesn't work, then we the second property might be your spouse or your significant other using either the 5% down or the FHA on that one. And then get, again, still hoping your income is still rising so that we can get, use that loan later in life, even if it's property three or four. And it's going to be very personal to your finances. So it, it's not, I mean, I've seen it go both ways where it works and it doesn't. Uh, I won't use his first name, but Jay Nelson would be a great example, Jordan, of one where we did that, where we saved his FHA loan for a second loan because he was high income. He was able to use the FHA loan where some people can't because he could qualify both incomes uh, not using rental income or both properties not using rental income. Yeah, that's awesome advice. I think that's so important for people. You know, if you're looking to set up a house hacking strategy, and correct me if I'm wrong here, aren't there some 15% down conventional loans that people can use if they're going to live in them? Yeah, yeah. So that is, that, that's the first of the, what I would call the non-low down payment loans, right? Mm-hmm. So any person at any level can qualify for a, a conventional loan with 15% down. So you could make whatever, half a million dollars a year and still get that loan, right? Awesome. Um, but there's income limits on the other one. FHA doesn't have those income limits either. I'm doing half a million dollar duplexes in the Twin Cities for people who are like, I've got a physician, for example, you, Jordan, he's one of our clients and he's buying a half million dollar home and he's using FHA. And so uh, one thing I would say is FHA has a stigma about it because it is low down payment and they allow for low credit scores. So people think it's bad borrowers, but not necessarily. Our most qualified buyers that we work with right now use FHA because they don't qualify for the low down payment conventional could qualify for 15%, right? But, but uh, without getting into every financial reason, I wouldn't recommend that because 15% is nearly it's, it's, it's three quarters of a way to a 20% down payment on one of those portfolio products I talked about. So basically if you had 15% money right now, if you use three and a half percent, you're more than halfway to also getting a non-owner occupied property right alongside with it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I just use an FHA loan to buy another duplex. And it it was my fifth property that I currently own. So absolutely not my first time. Um, So Tim, let's talk about for that person that just won't or can't house hack for some reason, how do they buy their second or third property? I know that's probably going to be a little different story than the FHA to conventional or VA to conventional type of thing. One second, Jordan. I just looked up that income. It's seventy eight thousand zero eighty on on uh, Freddie Mac's website as of today. Um, I want to double check because uh, I want to make sure their website is perfectly up to date and if they're agreeing with my Minnesota. Yeah, they don't have our Minnesota. Oh wait, this is a different part of. Minnesota. Let me see here. I'm just looking this up real quick. Sorry. Figure I might as well help your uh, Austin peeps out here. Sure. Yeah. And I think what Tim's trying to say, just to reiterate this, if you make above a certain amount, the 5% down duplex loan or the 5% down multifamily loan is not available to you. So maybe it makes sense to start there when you're making just right at that limit, get into that 5% down loan. Because after you get that first property, the income from the first property is going to push you over that limit 
So if you bought the first one FHA and now you're pushed over the limit, you can't get the next one 5% down. Then you'd have to go to a 15% down or if you're not living in it, 25% down loan to buy a multifamily. So it's really important to stack these loans in the right way and just make sure you understand the financing options. And you want to talk to a lender like Tim, you know, if you're in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and what other areas do you work in, Tim? All of Minnesota and all of Wisconsin. So all of Minnesota and Wisconsin, you want to talk to somebody like Tim, it's going to help you plan out the succession here with, with buying properties because you don't want to get stuck into just having one. Nobody wants just one usually. Yeah. And I'll give people a tip. Um, well, first of all, you need to work with a lender who is focused on real estate investing because this 5% down program might seem very straightforward and it is for me, it's second nature, but there are some tricks to it that allow us to like ignore some income so that you qualify it. For example, I can't ignore any of your base income, but I don't have to use your overtime income if I don't want to is part of the thing. If I don't use it, then you can't qualify based on it, right? But if it were to push you over the max, then we wouldn't do that. Same thing with rental income. So for example, you want to buy a duplex and you know it's got, let's call it $10,000 a year in rental income. I can either choose to use it or I don't. I can't use part of it, but if that $10,000 will put you over the cap, we can choose not to use it and still qualify you. Uh, and then maybe in that case, maybe we do use your, your uh, overtime income, but maybe we don't because that pushes you over the cap, right? So there are ways to manipulate the system to get you to qualify. A, a very good one is during COVID, I have someone right now who's on furlough. And because of the furlough, she now qualifies for the 5% down program. <laughs> off furlough next year and she doesn't anymore. So she's using the 5% now. We're positive she's going to be able to use an FHA in the future because her normal income is high enough that she would qualify that she'd have to use FHA, right? So like it's important to use a good loan officer who not just knows how you get you the best rates and fees because anyone can do that. You really need someone who can help you plan. Absolutely. And I think that's really important. So yeah, Tim, back to the the second or third. So let's say you just bought your first investment property. It's a single family home and you bought it for 15% down. Yep. How do you get your second single family? Is it just straight back to the 15% down or is there other, any other creative if strategies? If you're staying multifamily, it would be. And 15% down multifamily would only be duplex. If you, if you live in it, if you buy a triplex or a fourplex and you go conventional, 25% down, right? Okay. Like if you're not on one of those other programs. Um, and, and if you don't live in it, there's really no way around that 25% down, correct? Yeah. I mean, again, if you're sticking specifically to conventional, uh, but there is, of course, because the other alternative is those alternative products I mentioned earlier. I, I call them a couple different things. So I'll probably say, you know, it, they're portfolio loan products. And what a portfolio loan product is compared to a conventional is think of conventional as standardized, meaning that every lender across the country must meet certain criteria or, or that can't be sold into this pool of loans. And then those pool of loans are basically sold on Wall Street, right? That's kind of how mortgages work in the conventional world. Well, the standardization of those loans means that the down payment can't change, or at least the minimum. But when you get out of that standard pool, um, it's up to the individual lender to choose their down payment. And so you can get 10, uh, 20% down duplexes. I've even found 
a national lender. They actually are not doing it now during COVID, but there is a national broker lender that will do 15% down on a duplex. So, right. So people might say to themselves, well, I don't want to be over leveraged. And they, I hear that a lot. And so they're like, I would never do a 15% down program. And uh, I, I just think that's crazy. First off, I, I have to say um, the math doesn't support it. And the problem is it feels right, right? They think you're, if, if I'm over leveraged, I'm in danger. No, if you're undercapitalized, you're in danger. And here's why I mean that. So for every $1,000 that you borrow on a 30-year loan, it costs you about $5 a month in today's, with today's interest rates, right? So if you had put down an extra 20%, $20,000 down on a house, just to make sure that you're not over leveraged, your payment's exactly $100 less per month, but you've got $20,000 less in the bank. Now, fast forward, you know, let's say that was last year. Fast forward to COVID, all of your tenants stop paying and the roof starts leaking out at the same time. What does $100 a month do for you? Yeah, absolutely. Not much. Right. I'm going to fix your roof. I tell you what, if if your rent on that property, like my Northeast Minneapolis duplexes are about $3,000 a month in rent, right? 3000 to 3200 is pretty typical is what I would receive from both units. It would take 32 months just to make up for one month of lost rent. 32 months, right? It does nothing. What would $20,000 do for me? It would actually pay the mortgage payment on that duplex for 10 to 12 months, depending on the property. 10 to 12 months. Over leverage is completely misunderstood. There actually is no such thing as over leverage. It's under capitalized. That's the problem. And that's most investors and they don't even know it, right? Um, the worst thing you can do is put too much money down on a house, in my opinion. Unless you pay it off, that's a different story. But that takes a long time, and most people I know can't do that. So it, it would be better to take, even if it's only $5,000, you are so much more safe with $5,000 in the bank than you are with a payment that's 25 bucks less a month. It's, there's just no comparison in it. We even did it. We own a 200-unit apartment building. We figured if we put an extra $100,000 down, that $500 less in payment per month, or I'm sorry, 5,000, it meant nothing. It meant absolutely nothing. It wasn't going to change anything for us. It was like a couple, uh, how did it work? It was like a couple, like just a couple of tenants not paying us. But $100,000 fixes just about every issue you could have. We had a, a water heater go out. It was $35,000. Oh, so it, it's just, I don't know. It doesn't matter what you're doing in real estate. It, it's just over leverage is misunderstood completely. Anyway, that's a tangent, but it's super important. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's always different ways to think about things. And I think the traditional logic is put as much down on a house as you can. It'll help you when you're you're going to pay it off faster. And that's, you know, logic from Uncle Bob. And I, I use Uncle Bob. Mm -hmm. It's just a blanket statement. That's just your uncle or your dad or whoever who's not a real estate investor. But you really want to look at the math as a real estate investor and say, hey, like you just said, if I put down an extra 10 grand, yeah, my mortgage payment's going down, but I don't have that 10 grand to make repairs or cover the mortgage when tenants aren't in it. And that's what causes people to lose properties is they don't have the money to pay for the property because X, Y, Z happened. So yep. it's really important there. So yep. Tim, yep. When Did people... I answer your question? I feel like I went on a tangent. Do we, do we oh. need to go back to that and make sure it's covered or... Are no, absolutely. I, th I think we're good there. Once people are at, I know with uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans, once you get past four loans, and I, 
I know this from experience myself and with others, it gets really hard to get alone. So what do people do to get that fourth, fifth and sixth type properties or how do they keep buying? You know, yeah. I know most people's goals is not just to buy three properties because you and I both know three properties, especially if it's three single families or duplexes, isn't going to have you retired on a beach somewhere. Definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. So I think that for most people, they try to do it alone. And my, my biggest advice actually would be partner up. And, and that might mean traditional partnership where, where you're both putting money in and getting equity and all that, or it might be going to your Aunt Mary and asking her to borrow you money for a down payment, right? And paying her very handsomely. There's all kinds of different ways to do it, but you've got to start using other people's money. Uh, because uh, I've got multiple very wealthy investors and they still run on money because they find bigger deals and they find better deals and, or they find too many, right? Because one thing you'll find and Jordan can definitely agree with this, but if you're known to be a buyer, people will come to you with deals, right? If they know you can execute. So you'll get all these great deals coming to you and eventually run out of money. So no matter how wealthy you are, you're going to run out of money and you're going to need partners. Even these, you know, apartments that we see buy, they're not one person buying them. They're a group of people buying them, right? But even even true with uh, some of the guys I got, I know, I got a guy in the Twin Cities I know, he's got 76 properties. They're not all, it's not 100% him. He's got partners, you know, for down payment and other things. It, it takes a team, I think, to really grow. So I personally think that's the number one answer to your question. But for those people who are not ready to hear that yet, then you just need to get creative on your financing. You have to look for these portfolio products. You have to be willing to refinance or sell properties in order to free up capital to use on other projects. Like, for example, I, I used to think like this, so I get how people do, but I used to think that I was going to keep all my properties till I die. That's because I wasn't really trying to flip. I was thinking, you know, long-term cash flow, financial freedom, those kind of concepts. But that doesn't mean that your capital is best spent in your first deal. If you fall in love with the property and don't treat it like a business, what you end up doing is you fall in love with it. And then when it's not really serving your purpose, you're holding on to something that could be better if it was somewhere else. So, and, and I finally learned that it took me about 15 years of investing to, to realize that we sold off seven properties, made a lot of money, at least for me, it was a lot of money for me and put it into something we felt was better. And so I encourage people stay uh, open-minded um, be re- be willing to refinance or sell to get other properties. Um, it's a business, right? Do not fall in love with your interest rate. You get a property today. If you buy a, a real uh, a rental property right now, the month we're doing this podcast, you're probably going to have an interest rate of about three and a half percent on a rental. To give you to put it in perspective, rates were in the fours and even low fours on non rentals in January of this year, right? Six, seven months ago, a rental property would have been about four and a half to 5%. Now it's three and a half. If you fall in love with that, that's dangerous. Because if you fall in love with that, you're going to make bad decisions and not grow. I don't care how much, how low your interest rate is on this property today. If you can turn it into two properties and those properties are going to double your profits, you should refinance into a 7% if you need to. Right. Like I made that number up, but it doesn't matter. And here's the example. Jordan, you helped us sell 1138 Forest. It was a small duplex I purchased in Northeast Minneapolis. I refinanced our first investment property to take the cash out to buy that one. The entire time we owned it, we cash flowed over $1,400 a month because it had no, no real maintenance. It was $1,440, but the maintenance was almost zero. 
1440 a month for two years and we sold it and we made 110,000 on sale. Okay. What interest rate would have been too high for me to, to not refinance that first property to pull the cash out? I think the answer is there is no interest rate that would have been so high to make that second deal not make sense. So you need to stop thinking about your interest rate and start thinking about how is your equity working for you? That's how you grow. Absolutely. Awesome advice, Tim. I think it's really important. You mentioned here, don't fall in love with your interest rate, but don't fall in love with a rental property. Correct. It is it is a business in itself. So each rental property is a business. And at the point in time where your business isn't making you as much money as it should anymore, it's ready to cut. It's time to cut it loose and move that money elsewhere where it can make you a better return. So mm-hmm. I've seen that same thing with personal properties where, oh, it's making great cash flow. You look at the dollars coming out of it. No, it's great. But you look at the equity in it and the percent return is in the low single digits. So maybe it's making you a three or 4% return. That's not a very good return for a rental property. Maybe you need to move that money elsewhere, take that giant chunk of equity and make a 10% return off it. You know, yep. that's awesome cash flow compared to what you were making. So, yeah, Split always just property, right? Something like that. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. So, we're going to switch gears here, Tim, and get back into the, the real estate investing portion. Sure. Can you tell us about your worst deal. So, I know everybody talks about their great deals and all these awesome successes they had. Maybe tell us about your worst deal and why it was bad and what you could have done to make it better. Yeah. So my worst deal was bad enough that I never totaled up the total losses. I know for sure between original purchase price and sale price, it was over a quarter of a million, but that doesn't include some improvements and some other things that I lost along the way. That doesn't account for closing costs or anything else, right? I'm sure the losses exceeded 300,000, but I don't want to know the real number. Okay. (laughs) So what I did is I owned a mortgage company and back in 2006, we were like printing money, right? It was, it was wonderful. It was easy. So I put money down on an office condo. And I don't remember anymore the exact earnest deposit, but I know it was at least 50000 I believe what happened was it was 50000 And then I had to put, a, I think it was 50000 by the time I figured it out. I got to a point where we were supposed to close in late 2006, Um, I put the money down in 2005, by the way, and uh, September to be exact. And I started to get real nervous about it. I just felt things weren't right in the market. I specifically remember that July, things really changing. There was a different tone. There was a different feel. And a couple things happened where I was like, this isn't good, but I didn't want to lose the 50 grand. And I I was like, you know what? I'll just buy it. And if I need to, I'll sell it later. I bought it. I closed on my wedding anniversary, September 27, 2006. And most people don't know this. They think the mortgage crash happened in 2008. But it really, it really actually, for anyone who was on the front lines, it really happened in uh, mid-year 2007. Our income dropped in half between like June. And, uh, so somewhere right around the first half of the year, the second half of the year was a night and day difference. And actually, if you really were paying attention, you could feel it in six, like I said. So anyway... I went ahead with the deal, even though I thought I shouldn't. And I was like, I was really didn't feel good about it. And what it did is it was an office condo and I was stuck because I didn't have a backup plan. It wasn't a rental, right? This was like a, and so I didn't have a backup plan. There was no one to rent it to. And I, I was absolutely stuck in that deal. And the only way out of it was to keep my company in it and to just keep 
funneling all my money into this thing. And it just became a, a nightmare. The taxes were high. That's another example, by the way. Um, the, and, uh, and there was no out. I had no out. And the combination of the high taxes, the high payment, no out, that cost me a lot of money too, because I would have frankly made more as an employee from someone else. But if I shut my company down, I couldn't pay for my office, right? So it was an awful deal in so many ways. I got out of it and it took me years to get out of that one. But here's a good tip for you. So I think lenders are, I'm a lender, right? But I also have lenders that I have to go to and I think they're important. So I had created a, a very good relationship with the bank that financed my office condo. And when I went to go sell it, I knew I couldn't pay them. I was a short sale. I couldn't pay them what I owed. But I knew that if I ever wanted to have a rental property again in the near future, because of all these losses I had, I need to keep them on my side. So voluntarily, I called them up and said, look, there's no way I can sell, keep paying this. And if I sell it, there's no way I can pay you off. So instead, what I want to do is I've got these other rental properties. And if as long as you'll give me a loan on them, I will agree to take and pay you back everything that I um, the, the entire loss plus interest. So I took a second mortgage out of $116,000 and buried it into these other rental properties and paid back this lender every cent. They didn't lose a dime. I was told I was only one of two customers who did that for them. That bank loves me to this day. And they told me that they would borrow me up to $2 million with, as long as I had the down payment. That was their only requirement. I could borrow $2 million bucks from them. This is someone who had gone through a bankruptcy because he had a mortgage company going to foreclosure. But when push came to shove, I made sure they didn't lose money. And that was so important to them that I don't usually use them because they're not the best terms. Now I can get better terms from other people. But if I really needed to get a deal done, I can call them up and I can have the owner of the bank on the phone. You know, I guess what I'm saying is look at the big picture and you should treat your lenders like they are a team member. And I'm not just talking like people like me. I'm talking your banks, everything. Don't screw them. <laughs> Absolutely. That's my awesome advice. I think that that just goes down to always do the right thing. Yeah. If you have an obligation, make sure you meet your obligation. And that just is across the whole real estate investing world. If yeah. you tell somebody you're going to do something and you don't, it's going to get out and that's going to follow you around forever. Oh, don't tell me you're living in a property if you're not really going to live in it. That's the one that gets me. Yeah. No mortgage fraud. Mortgage fraud is a bad idea. Yeah. Tim, what's one thing newer investors should know? I think you've already told us a lot of things, but I'm sure you have a few more that you could share with the listeners. Yeah, well, the biggest thing I see, especially like in forums on websites like Bigger Pockets and other ones, or just even on uh, Facebook investing groups, I see this a lot is people talking about like setting up LLCs uh, when they start investing. And I think anyone who's even thinking about that is thinking about it all wrong. They're going about it backwards. The first thing you need to do is find good deals. And you're not going to find good deals unless you learn to analyze good deals, right? So your focus needs to be on finding the deal. I don't care whose name it is, whether it's an LLC. LLCs take 10 minutes to set up. At least in Minnesota, you can do it online on the on the Secretary of State's website. It's 155 bucks. Don't worry Save about in it. Texas. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Save in Texas. Don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. Find a deal. Like to me, the biggest thing is not overcomplicating it, right? And that, that would go right back to that. Don't worry about LLCs. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Yeah, you, you know, your Uncle Bob might tell you you need all these. No, you don't. You need to listen to Jordan or whoever your realtor is and find a good deal. 
And once you do that, you can worry about other stuff, right? Like, I do think you can undercomplicate mortgages. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think you can make bad choices. But even if you make bad choices, they're correctable, right? You can always refinance. You can, there are things you can do to correct that. But you need to take action. Because what I see from most people is they overcomplicate it. And then they get this big, complicated situation that's just almost impossible. And guess what other people are doing? They're buying. So I guess the other two things is you're going to be nervous when you buy your first rental property. It's going to happen like buyer's remorse, whatever. You got to just know that going into it and be willing to deal with it. Right. And that comes, that confidence will come from learning to analyze properties, not from figuring out your LLC or whatever else. Right. So analyze properties, get used to that. And then you really have to think of your business like a business and not like a consumer. And so what I mean by that is every single rental property is like a very small business. Think of it like a corner store that ends up being a part of a franchise, right? They're not complicated, but if you start, you need to sometimes invest in businesses. Like for example, you save money when you buy a, uh, a car by lowering the price and everything else. But getting a lower price on a, on a rental property doesn't necessarily automatically make it more profitable. In fact, I would even argue that more often than not, you'll get more profits from a, from a more expensive place, provided it's getting more rent, right? And so, you know, this is a very generalized way of saying, don't look, the cheapest isn't the best when it comes to rentals. You really need to think of it like a business. And that goes to that print rate, uh, rent to price ratio and how nice is the place. If it's nicer and it costs you $10,000 more, that's 50 bucks more a month, right? Going back to that $1,000 equals five bucks a month. Well, if you can get a hundred dollars a month per unit and the place only costs you $10,000 more, that's $200 more per month for 50 bucks a month in cost, in additional cost, right? So you really have to think of it like a business and not like what's the cheapest price. It's more like what's going to profit me the most. Absolutely. So just going back to don't just use the, or yeah, don't look at the cheapest property. Don't use simple rule of thumbs, really analyze the property and see what it's actually going to do for you. Mm -hmm. So I think that's awesome advice. Tim, what's your best just general mindset advice for people who are looking to get into investing? I know that mindset can be a huge holdback when it comes to investing. And what do you do to get in the right mindset to make good decisions? Yeah, I, well, I think I mentioned, I think all four of the last things I just mentioned were all mindset related. So I'm going to actually refer to those. But if I were going to pick out on those, I would say, number one, don't, don't overcomplicate it, right? You can get overly complicated and think of it like a business. I mean, those, if I wanted to pick out, you know, two rather than one, it would be do those two things. And that's going to guide you in the direction you need to go. And what's your favorite business or investing book? So just one book that you recommend everybody read the e-myth um by michael gerber i just think that one is the one that people need to know because um it's you know that book is really about systematizing and in like everything doesn't have to be created uh like created completely uniquely every single time right like for example if you were to be i don't know calling on individual owners to try to, you know, like door knock, right? Or something, right? Going up to each individual one and trying to see something completely unique to them would be great. You might get a better result if, if you were able to do that every time, but that's going to stop you from doing it a hundred times. If you go up to every single one of them and just go up with something very generic and just knock, 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 
would you like to buy or sell your home? And they say, no, that's a lot easier to implement. So I think you need to learn to systematize and, and do things that are implementable so that you can basically free up time, right? And, and not try to recreate the wheel on every single opportunity. Yeah, great book. I love the E-Myth. And there's, um, guys, there's just tons of versions of the E-Myth too. I've got the E-Myth for real estate investors, the E-Myth real estate brokerage. There's just, there's probably a dozen of them. It's like the Miracle Morning. They've just made different versions of them and there's a bunch of them out there. Yeah. Did you, what did you think of the real estate investor one? Did you like it? I have not read it yet. So it's one of the millions books on my bookshelf that has not been read. I put it down halfway through. I, th- I thought it was awful. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, thanks for the advice. I won't waste my time. I, I thought it was a big sales job on them trying to sell you about their, how great they, the authors of it were rather than giving you concrete stuff. But I'm picky on that. I think a lot of the real estate books, like they give you generic BS in my opinion. They don't give you real hardcore solutions, but yeah. <laughs> So Tim, awesome. Thanks for all the advice, man. You've been great. Lastly, how can people get a hold of you and what's the best way to reach you? Yeah. I mean, I think that my, my email is my name, so it's kind of difficult. So I'm going to give you my phone number because it's just a little easier. Uh, Call, text, whatever. It's 651-772-9000. That's 651-772-9000. 9,000. We also have a website called teammortgagegeek.com. I don't do a lot with it, but you can find me through that teammortgagegeek.com. And I'd be willing to help your uh, Austin investors, at least give them a little tips here and there. Right. Um, Even though I'm not currently licensed in Texas, if if someone's got a burning question or they think they're hearing something from a a local lender that doesn't seem right, they can, you know, feel free if you're listening to this podcast and you're working with Jordan to reach out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've talked to other lenders and said, hey, you know, what about this 5% down duplex loan? And and they don't know about it. And I mentioned the exact name of the loan that Tim's told me. And they say, oh, yeah, we can actually do that. So you do want to find a lender that absolutely knows what they're talking about. Reach out to Tim and he can give you some advice if you need it. If you're in Minnesota or Wisconsin, he can absolutely help you. And he's the guy to talk to when it comes to getting a mortgage or buying rental properties. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. It's another episode of Austin Real Estate Investing. We can't wait to have you back next time.